And now I'm in a good mood. Good. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sagnusum, and we are wearing the same color hoodie today. Got Mine's all... not a hoodie. Yours is, what What would you call that? Oh, a jack. I don't know, like a fleece. A fleece. You're wearing a, the same color fleece. So we both have olive green uh, over, uh, we'll say jackets. We'll, we'll say, you know, some kind of exterior garment here. Chris, how are you doing today? You said good? Yeah, David, uh, you've cheered me up already. I started off sort of grumpy, but uh, you no, know, mm-hmm. it's it's been one of those uh, dramatic weather days, and I think it's been a dramatic weather in, in an interior sense, too. But I'm good yeah. now. I'm good. I want to talk about the interiority of weather when we get to that, but I wanted to open this episode with a story. I went to Jiffy Lube to get my car's oil changed. And when I walked into the waiting room with Gus, Gus had a box of Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets and hash browns with him. And we go into this tiny waiting room and it's like walking into some absurd play. So there's an old man with a cowboy hat on chewing on an unlit cigar who's talking to a 70-year-old black man, and I know he's 70 because he mentioned it several times, with a gold tooth. And they're getting along famously. Apparently, the man in the cowboy hat is a doctor. They're exchanging business cards. They're loving it. I'm watching this. Gus is fiddling with the magazine rack and messing with the water dispenser. And I'm thinking, this is so great. This is, you know, these old guys, racial harmony. This is so great. The doctor leaves, the cowboy hat doctor leaves, and the old black man turns to me and he says, have you ever heard of fentanyl? And I said, yeah, I have heard of fentanyl. I think that's what killed Prince. And a man who up until this point has said nothing, uh, piped in from the corner of the room. He said, no, I believe that's propodopadol or some other thing, right? So this guy and I get on famously, he's got this, he's he's just, he's a talker. He's talking a mile a minute. And I like to open up to people like that because I know they won't remember me as soon as they walk out because they're just moving at that speed. So I'm telling him all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I had Gus at, at 34 and, you know, and then I'm talking about my own father, how he had me very young and He's like, you know, but it's good. It's good to see fathers with their children. It's good to see fathers taking some responsibility. And then he turns, a new guy walks in, looks like a regular guy. He's wearing an OU hoodie, baseball cap. He sits down, gets on his phone. And the black guy turns to him and says, let me ask you a question. The guy says, okay. The guy, the old guy says, why is it that if you get arrested for possession of crack, you go to jail? But if you get arrested for cocaine, you go to rehab. The guy says, I don't know. And the black man says, let me tell you. I'll spell it out for you. W-H-I-T-E, privilege. And the guy says, We'll have to disagree. We'll have to agree to disagree on that one. 
So all of a sudden, my vision of this racial harmony is suddenly breaking down in this Jiffy Lube waiting room. And it breaks out into this three-way argument that I'm not involved in about racial privilege. And this Black guy is saying, if I was white, I would be a millionaire in 12 hours. But you wouldn't last 30 minutes inside my head. And this goes on for some time until his truck is done. I love that. <laughs> there might be some truth there. Yeah, there might be yeah. some truth. Yeah, there might yeah. be some truth. His truck is finished. He leaves. And the guy who he was arguing with says to the Mexican uh, attendant, the guy who rings everybody up, this guy says, uh, well, that guy's kind of a character, isn't he? And the Mexican guy says, the Mexican guy says, yeah, bro. I think he's coming from a place of pain. <laughs> and I thought, am I in a movie right now? This felt so like I couldn't have scripted the whole thing from its beginning as this semi-rustic, rural, idyllic, you know, men meeting at a, at a, at a car body shop, talking about this, that, and the other about their lives. And then almost timed perfectly as though it was if when we get to act three twitter facebook social media the current news creeped in and these three guys were having a conversation that that seemed a bit scripted to me it seemed a bit i felt like i was on a prank show do you remember the show punked yeah when people yeah, would get yeah, pranked yeah. I had to wonder if I was getting punked because Gus, of course, is just, you know, he's two years old. He's being a maniac. He's he's running, running around here. He's grabbing these men's shoes and pulling on them. And I was just watching this happen. And I thought, what in the hell is going on? But that's my that's my fun story for the week. Oh, dear me. That was thank you so much. That was entertaining on multiple levels. I have so many responses to that. And I'll uh I, I, I was so engaged. I think I, I can handle them in order. The first thing I thought was wonderful was the description of, of gas and the food, the chicken nuggets and the hash browns, but also a very subtle thing, which I think is really beautiful. And it may be happening so subtly that you aren't that aware of it, that there's this new sense of independence mm -hmm. in him. That is quite, I mean, only a little while ago, you know, he was like wallowing around and, and not standing up. Not There's just, without any visualization, your description just takes me through, you know, many, many days of, of time-lapse change and mm -hmm. development. That's really quite remarkable, beautiful, but also I think kind of, of terrifying in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I thought that the purely verbal storytelling description <clears throat> was actually maybe more powerful than seeing that in a filmic mm -hmm. sense. So that was my first thought. And that got me thinking about this, that wonderful storytelling development that you just spun out that, that certainly is a great American literary tradition of I think maybe, you know, some would say starting with Mark Twain, but I see it really beginning in the in the 20th century with Dos Passos, Thomas Wolfe. Thomas Wolfe was that totally. You know, he used to, he was so he was very tall and he used to write 
on top of his refrigerator. He had a notepad mm-hmm. and uh, was was obviously manic and uh, probably ADHD and died too young, but just wrote because he had that narrative stream, which then we see Kerouac picking up on, uh, you know, very, uh, very, very easily. And uh, Céline would be, you know, the European equivalent of that, where the narration creates the drama. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of, of writers and certainly students don't understand of narration emerging, evolving into drama, as opposed to a kind of binary between them. But I thought that was so much more vivid in my mind. And I, I'd recently rewatched Pulp Fiction. And I think Tarantino might be nominated as a possible director for the scene yeah. Yeah. done. You know, maybe, I don't know, David Lynch would have done it, would do another thing. Yeah. But yeah. I honestly think that in a way I, I, I enjoyed your presentation of it more than I would a, a, a filmic mm-hmm. treat. So it's kind of an extension of my thing about, about gas, but then I, and I love this idea of being in uh, what is sometimes called a lubratorium, you know? Ooh, I like that word. It's a Route 60. So you see those advertise, you know, before the Jiffy Lube franchises and stuff, there were lubatoriums. But that's exactly what's happening with these social issues and a personal connection, a rapport that seems kind of friendly and, you know, mm-hmm. just ordinary, you know, men together. And it becomes lubricated into this mess of social issues conflict. And I thought it was very interesting that your interior weather experience of that phrased itself as things becoming more scripted. I love that. That that resonates with, with what I was, uh, I think I was last episode or maybe two, but talking about the difference between uh, how television is categorized, you know, unscripted versus scripted. And that, that I'm thinking a lot about that for my memory and consciousness book and the underlying sense that we have when things do become, become kind of scripted, what that actually mm-hmm. means and how that really figures into, I think, modernity and all of our exposure to TV and film and on and on and on. Uh, that weird sense that, scriptedness has taken hold and it, it's quite distressing i think psychologically i mean don't you find that that it it's i'm i'm struggling to think of moments where i've had that feeling that come to mind relatively easily that don't do so with a kind of uncomfortable quality You know, it's not fun and exciting because those are surprising, kind of unscripted, right? But Mm -hmm. scriptedness, even, you know, when you start with an individual or particularly like scriptedness, if you're driving in a car with one other person, that's that's a very claustrophobic negative thing, I think. Uh, I I told that story to a friend of mine named Glenn, Glenn, who hosts a really good podcast called Rare Candy. It's a health and wellness slash sports slash esoterica it's it's a mishmash but it's really great i told him that story and he said it sounds like you left twitter 
and then Twitter came looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Oh, that's yeah. That's kind of nice and ominous and oh, creepy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh dear. Okay. Do, well, do I, you I, have a band name for us I today? Do. All I right. Do. Let's go. The band is called Quack. I love that word. I love how quack, you know, we talk about quack doctors and things, but I think that making a a duck call quack is really therapeutic and I do it from time to time, but, uh, and it also ties in with the idea of a canard, you know, and the, the French word literally means a duck, but there's some interesting connotations of what a canard is. So the band is named quack, but here's the deal. Now, maybe someone has thought of this. I, I, can't, I can't believe it hasn't been thought of. But this is the first band that is really performing it. There are five members, and they are all completely and profoundly deaf. So they have no idea. And their album is called We Can't Hear You. <laughs> and... All of their songs <laughs> are as off kilter as you'd expect of people who have <laughs> no ability to hear. And all of the titles are based on misunderstandings. Instead mm-hmm. of a choking hazard, it's chicken hazard. Mm-hmm. And I particularly like this one, blunt face trauma. <laughs> Blunt face would be a good rapper name. Yeah. Yeah. No blunt force to blunt face. Yeah. Blunt face trauma. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of quack? I mean, they're the, I mean, talking, I think they're, you, you said that I was, you know, my, the, my trend was uh, sort of deconstructionist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. I'm really going to push the envelope here. Yeah. I think you outdid yourself. That's a good one. I, the album title <laughs> just being called We Can't Hear. That tickled me. That just got me. Good, really. good. Yeah. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm grateful for that. And uh, I have, I have a couple of aphorisms, very different registered. I also have a new phrase term that I came up with, which I want to share with you. My first one is, if you cross a room with excitement does it make it a more interesting room couldn't hurt i like that i like, I like that. in too. class we're playing with phrasings of you know if you cross something with something do you you know do, what do you get that equation built into right. that so if you cross a room with excitement do you get a more interesting room couldn't hurt second one's a bit more serious The internet has become civilization's disembodied stunt double. Hmm. Stunt doubles have been on my mind of like, I think they're, I think they're an odd, odd idea because I think we can not, there's no way to overthink or overestimate the effect of, of TV and film on, on contemporary consciousness. It's just, it's it's amazing to consider 
And those are still fairly recent innovations. My phrase, which I dig, is ricochet harmonics. Got a lot of thoughts on that. Got a lot of, of ways to use that and develop that idea in the book and the podcast, it, you know, series to come and all sorts of stuff. So that's that bit. And are you ready for the imaginative challenge? I am. I wanted to interject that there is a, a when you finished your uh, aphorism, where uh, about the disembodied stunt double, which I love, by the way, I think that's that's really interesting. A clap of thunder just shook the whole house, and really? I think my mic, my mic probably picked it up. Yeah. Oh wow! Because uh -huh. you know that could happen. We're on the edge of that same sort of weather, but this is. Okay, this is where we're getting into a very, very interesting terrain of uh, architecture, land archaeology too, but architecture meeting meteorology, meeting psychology, you know, in one. I yeah, we've got to we've got to come back to the. We we will come back to the weather as interiority because you told me something before we started recording that has been stuck on my mind since you mentioned it. But yes, imaginative challenge, I'm ready to go. Okay, well, it's a great uh, sub-genre of literature, the creation of hells. You know, not just Dante, but many, many uh, great works feature visions of not the afterlife, but but a hell, a hell. So that's the most important thing. And I was thinking that uh, it started with for me uh, a hell for Gen Z, and I thought of an endless Fort Lauderdale spring break, booze, babes, boobs, and buzz but never ending, never, never ending. And in my little sort of daydream fantasy, simultaneously, the only other major thing that was happening other than this endless Fort Lauderdale spring break party that they can never escape. Florida's already exploding Burmese python population goes supernova. So it is possible for some of these Gen Zers to experience, you know, massive intakes of alcohol and vomiting episodes, multiple gang bang events, volleyball gone wrong, on and on and on. And to also have the strange peristaltic sense of being eaten alive by a giant Burmese python to have happen again and again and again. So your challenge is to come up with a hell for your age demographic. Okay. Yep. And we want an emphasis on, on the things that you, well, you do so many things well, but we love David Gore. I'm still mm -hmm. just a, a fan of the, the manger scene our Christmas episode when you released a Terminator 
the wise that one of the three wise men was on a Terminator mission. That's one of my favorites. Gore in the manger, but you do gore well. So we also want that sense of context that, you know, where is the venue for this? Mm-hmm. Still talking in terms of architecture and all always talking in a lost explorer sense about boundaries and terrain and, and location. Location mm-hmm. before identity is is I think one of our ongoing themes. So any questions? No. No. Okay. My, like my gears are spinning already. All right. So I will be thinking about creating a help for millennials. This will be fun. What would you like to talk about today? Okay. Well, we, we've kind of mentioned uh, the interiority weather link between meteorology and psychology thing, but I, I did start and, and was bringing to this thing a carry on of our architectural sort of ideas. And I think the one will lead into the other, but I was thinking about architecture as a really deep cultural uh, structural fundamental. And I think it is where the idea of structures come from. I was thinking about all of the structures that uh, particularly say my students completely take for granted and are rather startled, uh, usually in a pretty good way, uh, to have any insight into it all. And I'm thinking of deep structure things and, and further explanation of what I mean by really deep structure, deep grammars, alpha, the alphabet and the idea of alphabets. I mean, the moment you start thinking about that, and, and start peeling through the history of that notion, things get enormously mysterious. And yet we, our entire existence is based on not just shorthanding all of those mysteries, but completely ignoring them and working on beginning on a level many stages up. And part of what we, we do with raising children and the learning to read, I mean, it's much, it's so deep beyond that. We are teaching them to move up many levels uh, without any reference to those other levels, the deeper levels, and they may never contact them again. Base 10 might be a, a, a math version of that. You know, we used to have the counting man in, in school. He was a cardboard cutout. And clothespins could be put on his, you know, hands. And um, I remember one kid who was, you know, probably on the spectrum was terrified of this figure. I was going to all... say that the, the counting man sounds like a horror villain. Exactly. Like a, a, movie, mean, a movie called The Counting Man. Like I mean, one, one, two, three, he's coming for you or something like that. It's, this is so bait, isn't it? It's so obvious to any thinking for, but it, for kids, it was terrifying. Plant a seed of, of negative thinking about basic arithmetic. Well, the counting man will do it. Any, yes, I'm so glad you saw that. I was terrified. It was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. <laughs> Stuff of, of just ongoing dreams, not special nightmares at all. Uh, but it, it goes into deep things of uh, any standards of measurement. 
any stand, I mean, I'm going to make a point in this episode. I don't want anyone to not know the answer to this. And I'm sorry to be sound uh, condescending to anyone who does know, but I found out none of my students knew the answer to this today. It came up for whatever reason. Europe is on the metric system. America refuses and is on the Oh, Jesus. I'm, I'm, wait, give me one moment. Give me one moment. No, it's okay. It's okay. Please just don't feel in any way, uh, you know, embarrassed or at all. There's no, it, it, no one knows the answer to this, which is why I'm going to tell everyone. What is it? The imperial system, which is odd. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's the answer to that. And it this this really, I think, exemplifies what I'm talking about is not only are the structures there that we depend on and use all the time, we really have no no reference about them at all. you know and and it goes on. Uh, even I've talked to writers and graduate, you know MFA program that really don't know, how many parts of speech there are in English, how many accepted yeah. verb tenses, you know, very, very, very big. How many, you know, how many sentence types are there really, you know, those basic structural things. And oftentimes, you know, people who are wanting to, to get published in the New Yorker are don't know the answer to that and are really offended when I ask and mm-hmm. things are above all of these things. I don't think that, the, that there's the equivalent of this in, in say, a music fine arts program. I think mm-hmm. musicians, math, I mean, and I think mathematicians don't forget the fundamentals. I think they, they stay in touch with those. Uh, I think it's something particular about uh, the writing mindset. But anyway, these deep things that I think All of those, to me, fairly fall under the rubric of architecture, and they create the rubric. The idea of rubric is is architecture is one of those self-explaining deep concepts. And so the challenge then becomes to how we look at architecture in a very denotative sense. I think people's vocabulary on that is very poor. And I've enjoyed our discussions when we've talked about our enjoyment of of physical, literal, basic architecture. Um, And there's not a lot of good stuff going on now. There's a lot of gimmicky stuff. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I did want to just get your opinions about some of the the obvious gimmick buildings, particularly in Asia. You know, giant phone, you know, just things that are. You think really? Mm-hmm. Was that someone's idea? I mean, I can see that as an idea in a story, but someone built that thing. It's hideous. So there are those issues. But then when we as we move on the Bishop Barclay spectrum towards things that are a little bit harder to see and perhaps essentially, fundamentally, inherently invisible, how architecture works in those terms. I think that's the first uh, checkpoint that I'd like to get your thoughts on. But to give you a few handles, I think there it ties in with ideas about 
quantum uncertainty that we've talked about on the show. We've talked about the paradox of non-locality, which is kind of a feature of, of quantum mysteriousness, but also the fact that everything is strangely local, as in psychological and architectural within us. I mean, that's that freaks me out. We get, in a nutshell, I think one of the things that has confused the hell out of even the brightest people of the modern era is the is the the terror between non-locality action at a distance ancient magic becoming very very literally accepted from a scientific point of view and then also the inescapable fundamental not just locality but intimacy of psychological experience which is exactly the train that bishop barclay was on and also our great friend and hero william james you know so there's a lot of stuff to throw there i'm interested in anything that you have to say i think that one of the most notable gimmicks of current architecture is its um is its lack of any gimmick at all i think that the sameness is a big issue there is a house that was built across the street it was a vacant lot when i moved in and they uh, began building it about two and a half to three months ago it's a fascinating process to watch and gus loved it i sent you a picture i believe of him cheering yeah. on and cheering on an excavator um but now that it's up it's sort of just another house i drove by one today i took a wrong turn on my way to pick up uh some ramen from this great japanese place that just opened i took a wrong turn and i saw this house who's uh, it had wood paneling siding on, on the side of its house, but the paneling was carved with Inuit looking orcas and things of that nature. It was a really cool looking house and the trim was all deep purple. So it stood out. This house stood out among other houses. And I thought, okay, so the carvings and the wood paneling could be considered a gimmick. The purple could be considered a gimmick. But I'm at the point where I find that to be refreshing. I don't know how I would feel about a giant cell phone building in the middle of my neighborhood uh, or a giant, you know, angry demon face for for its entrance or something. Those might be cool. I mean, that's the nature of a gimmick, right? Is that it's fun when you see it, but it's not something you might want to walk past every day. Um, but a part of me also thinks that it's <laughs> sheer difference. It's ability. It's 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 separation from the sameness, from the cookie cutterness, might, in a sense, be interesting. I've noticed a lot more uh, box-like structures. We were walking past a house that is undergoing renovations. Uh, my mother and I, and she said, "Oh, that style of house. I used to see that all the time." in the late 70s and early 80s, this sort of almost barn look, this kind of boxy barn look. And I thought it looked really cool. I thought the house looked Two stories? Two stories, yeah. Okay. Two story. Um, 
but I've noticed a different kind of boxiness. I've noticed a lot, a lot of floor to ceiling windows in homes now, a lot of glass facade, a lot of um a lot of verticality. When I was driving around Oklahoma City, I took a turn into what you could tell was an affluent neighborhood. And there were homes that were built maybe in the mid-90s uh, that looked really nice. But you can always tell, excuse me, you can always tell when a home has been built by somebody with money post 2010, 2015, because they're very tall. They're very tall. And there's a lot of bamboo and glass. And it's all supposed to give this idea of transparency um, in a very strange way, in a way that I think doesn't necessarily jive with how uh, uh, rich people actually are, which is very concerned with things like security and privacy and things of that nature. So these buildings often don't seem to match that. They seem to be an exterior negation of how they feel on the inside. So that to me is very interesting. But if I had to boil it down, I would say that the the gimmickiness is the are these uh, sort of knockoff, um, a lot of stuff that I would see in my uh, this book called Jutaku, Japanese houses. Uh, a lot of sort of graceless, artless attempts at elegance that just completely fall flat. They don't work. They seem very out of place because they're so devoid of personality. Well, there's certainly many parts of America that, I mean, Nashville comes to mind. Parts of, I think, uh, often Beverly Hills, what I've seen of it. I think there's lots of, and I certainly think Las Vegas. I love your idea of, of the, you know, the gimmick. And that's a great Vegas word because a gimmick literally means any uh, rigging of a kind of roulette wheel or gaming wheel. So that oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's what, it, what that's where it comes from. It's a carny word, uh, but and I think that there, there's a there's a way to love gimmicks and to really I, I want to get back to your idea of the, of the no gimmick because I think that is a the gimmick is no gimmick because um, that's really sort of the biggest general point I think that you made, but it did strike me as that, that gimmicks, you said gimmicks can be fun in an architectural sense, but do you want to walk past that every day or be involved with it every day? And I thought, you know, Las Vegas didn't get that memo. <laughs> that's one of the definitions. Yeah. yeah. You know? right. Uh, right. And I wonder what that does to people psychologically. I think about that often when I look at, you know, districts in Tokyo, like Shinjuku, that are very interesting to look at. Takashi Miike sets a lot of his films there. It's the the hub of all Yakuza activity within the city. So you'll see these guys wearing these loud suits, and there's neon lights everywhere. <clears throat> and these carnival barker type guys are trying to get you to to come in to get a, you know, a free dance or a free massage or free first drink is free, that kind of thing. And it seems to me to be a very fun place to have a time like you and I had in Las Vegas, you know, one night running around drinking, being crazy, talking to midgets, you know, that yeah. seems cool and fun, but to live there 
it's like people who you have friends who live in Los Angeles and specifically in Hollywood and Hollywood's a great place to visit. I love Los Angeles. I think it's a really cool city. Uh, but I, the people who live there are just built a little bit differently because they wake up and that's still there. Unquestionably. No, I think this, this speaks to many issues that I'm thinking of in what, in the memory consciousness book of, of tempo, hmm. tempo of repetition, because repetition is happening all the time to all of us. But then the meta level, you know, these these environments are constructions. They're they're hyper real in that sense, and that ties into a whole uh, very postmodern uh, sort of approach. But I, I also love what you were talking about of just driving around and and noticing floor to ceiling windows and the verticality. I thought that was a really important word. And then the psychological effects that that has, you know, as you drive, what, what do you think of it? What does this mean as an architectural gesture, as a statement? What's the in it? What's the rhetoric of it? And I think this is a good example where if people feel comfortable with a vocabulary and that they can personalize it and really use it like tools they're familiar with rather than pretentious items that they're trying to show off with things they really feel comfortable with. They start to actually see more in whatever, you know, frame of reference we're talking about. That should be one of the definitions of what education and self-education and that crystal radio sense Mm -hmm, that we talk mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. is really just feeling simply more comfortable and more competent more able to to describe, engage, and connect with something, because then you can start talking about whole other levels of response, because everything does have psychological implications. Certainly everything, I mean, that's the nature of architecture. There's no Mm -hmm. question about that. Robert Irwin Notice that in terms of creating, you know, environments in an art gallery sense or breaking out of that, the earth mm-hmm. art people were all about breaking out of the galleries to get a, a larger architectural sense. We know, I mean, that's happening in every art form, really, where we're, we have that sense of what we were talking about with John Lautner and disappearing space and your emphasis on the implication of that is creating totemic magnetic focal points that do organize space and allow space to disappear and allow consciousness in that bachelard sense to expand, to have the daydream, to have a change in psychic tempo so that we're able to manage our interiority with social engagement. You know, we can't mm-hmm. stifle the daydream, the monologue all the time. We can't let it take over either. We have to navigate and we need spatial help in that, both in terms of physical boundaries, but light and acoustics. Yeah. You know, all yeah. of those things sensorily come together <laughs> to help us manage the interiority versus the public responsibilities. I I really love that a lot. And it brings to mind, you had me check out the Lost City Museum in Nevada. 
And it's mentioned in the tour video that I was watching that these groups of people on Asazi would build these Pueblo dwellings, single story with up to a hundred rooms. But this is Adobe, very thick, very th right, thick, right. thick material. So it's it's not it's not vertical, it's horizontal. It's on the x-axis. It's going out, but it's together, right? Versus a single family that has that takes up a lot of vertical space. So that dynamic is very interesting to me, and I couldn't help but think when you were talking about uh, uh, these kind of focal points. I wondered to myself, why is it that neighborhoods, and I'm talking specifically about suburban neighborhoods, they lack any kind of, um, they usually will have something like a dog park or a playground for children, but you rarely see statues and, and sort of public art in these spaces. And I wonder if that couldn't be a kind of focal point. There was a house in the old neighborhood that I lived in in Norman. And you remember all my Norman stories and how I would take these walks. And I might have mentioned this on the show before, but there was a fascinating house. And if I can find the picture in the camera roll on my phone, I'll, I'll send it to you. But there was a house. It had to be artists that lived there. Um, their house was decorated in all sorts of antlers, just antlers all over it. And in their yard, they had bronze sculptures of human body parts hanging from trees. So heads, there was an obese man who was standing on a tree stump. Uh, gold, he looked gold in the right kind of light, but he wasn't, obviously wasn't gold. Uh, and then there was a kind of a three by three, uh, you know, those, those tic-tac-toe games that kids will play on playgrounds where you spin the X's and the O's and that, that's yeah, how they yeah. play it. There was something like that, but it was only three by three. And it was these wood panels that could spin. And on either side of the panel, there was a happy and a sad face, like a relief that was carved into it. And the faces were either smiling or sad and you could spin it. Very bizarre house. But I remember thinking of that as a kind of to totemic lawn display. I was walking with my mother that same time that she mentioned that barn style. And she noticed that a house still had their Christmas lights up. And she said, oh, isn't that interesting? They have Christmas lights up as if, you know, God lover, as if calling attention to a house outside of a designated holiday period was something that you really shouldn't do. That was a little gauche. And mm -hmm. I thought to my, and, and so all of this has been uh, sort of in my head, especially when we think about uh, you, you called it the, the inescapable intimacy of psychological experience that we're all going through right now with things like the internet and how, how completely local we are through our phones, uh, neighborhoods and art and exteriority and being able to put parts of yourself psychogeographically into these totems, uh, I think at least has to be a help in, in regulating that constant hyperlocality that we're all experiencing. Which seem it, I know it seems backward because you know you're, you're putting it within to place right so uh, the idea of something being non-local well actually no it isn't is it because that it, it's still non-locality even if it's close by so I'll amend that but uh, what do you think of what I'm saying? Well, I think it's it's fascinating on so many different levels because it connects with so many different aspects of of our lives today i think uh 
it's particularly interesting, I think, talking about, well, it, it, it starts off with, I, I suppose, uh, one way to think is, is definitions of art and, and how those expectations are, are fulfilled. But to me, it speaks to how, and this is part of my, one of my, my big fixations in the memory and consciousness book is sort of the pre-echo phenomenon where uh, expectations, well, in, in a sense, you could say semantics precedes perception, which is a very terrifying thought, I think, um, because it really traps us within uh, a very problematic situation. If we flash back to a, a quotation from Gregory Bateson, which we've mentioned several times because it deserves it mm -hmm. that uh the degree to which any information is unpredictable that defines the the content of the information right, right. the value and, right the, yeah uh, and and so we're dealing with in a positive sense we can say the element of surprise mm -hmm. and what i in the textbook and in, in my thinking generally i call a welcome ambush Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. the idea of ambush. The Solomon Islanders just worship the idea of ambush because they think that is the way to learn everything. And kids start playing hide and seek with a religious intensity the moment they can walk. And mm -hmm. it's it's just, it makes such good sense to me because uh, it embraces a lot of things like camouflage and teamwork and all sorts of really cool things. But the idea of, ambush surprise the unforeseen we see it emerging with in in many different art pursuits of the chance element you know and not just john cage but many you know the whole uh i ching philip k dick a lot of this idea of getting uh chance random elements in the third mind that william burroughs and brian geisen talked about uh, but also very fundamentally, but I think he, the most mysterious thing of all, improvisation. Mm. You know, that you try to talk about that. You can focus, just say, on music for a moment. That, that just one, one aspect of life where you're talking about improvisation. And it still gets mysterious very quickly. You talk, you talk about improvisation more broadly. And it becomes almost impossible to mm -hmm. say anything meaningful. And yet you're talking about something that is essential to survival and is also can be sometimes the ultimate joy, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's lovemaking or discovering some new bend in a path or a river or I don't know, any aspect of our lives. It's discovery at its at its rawest and at its richest, you know. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And it makes me think of that. I I, I just have been going back to uh, John Keats again, and he's on looking into Chapman's Homer. We mentioned this. Just I think it's one of the most beautiful sonnets of all time. He gets the explorer wrong, as I said in an earlier episode. He thinks it's uh, Cortez first looking at. Uh, first European to look at the Pacific, it's Balboa. But, you know, when 
he looked to each other and, and all his men gazed at each other with a wild surmise, silent on a peak in Darien, you know, in Panama, mm-hmm. you know, sweaty canal zone sort of thing. But that wild surmise, I mean, that just, that is still, I think, one of the most beautiful lines ever, ever written. And I'm still, I'm still listening to you. I'm just going to go check on my dog. I can still yeah. So I think that sense of, of that, that need for surprise and the essential value of it is in such deep conflict with expectation structures and all the scaffolding of, of meaning and predictability that we carry around with us. It's amazing in a sense that we can perceive at all. But we're certainly a long way from that ability to oscillate between the essential freshness and newness of every moment and the need for pattern, routine, rhythm, and that strange sense of, of is the world new every, every minute, every moment? I mean, yeah, it is. But can we really deal with that? I mean, what, what are the implications of that? That seems terrifying. And yet it's the coolest thing in the world. And it's also the greatest freedom from the, the deep calcifying, ossifying, fossilizing structures of being rooted in the past. I think that... This idea that you had, uh, specifically, I, I keep I keep coming back to this, but the idea that uh, everything is local and non-locality. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between non-locality and architecture as you see it? I'm trying to get it solid. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really great question. I think that um, just as architecture was the first art form cultural expression to, and it often has been in the past, it's kind of the leader or is one of the first focal points when an era gets a name, you know, gets described by historians in terms of uh, some term or trend. And Modernism and postmodernism are, are really good examples. They both begin architecturally. Those terms spread out vastly into other mm, you know, mm-hmm, art forms mm-hmm, and to also social trends, you know, very, very much so. Uh, we think postmodernism splurged out into just this giant oil spill of uh, soft bodied ideas and mush and became so mushy we couldn't really make sense of it but in a way modern was modern we had the same fate it just mm-hmm. gets useful and gets too used and then becomes useless but architecturally thinking is where these major modern uh trends and i think that's the larger idea of, of in my mind what defines the modern era is almost uh architectural shifts in thinking and from the private and, and personal residential to the, the, the public and civic. 
I think there are a couple of ways to answer the non-locality idea is that I think it's been a real struggle. I think that that the first reaction was to uh, was in part a reaction to uh, Einstein and to quantum mechanics in a general sense of, if not atomization, at least fragmentation and a, and a sudden uh, invalidity of 19th century thinking in terms of organizing space. Mm, uh, mm, one mm, of the, the aspects that I think really doesn't get enough attention is the landscape architecture ideas and the great public parks of the 19th century, which we really owe to only a handful of, of great partnerships. Uh, Central Park, Prospect Park, Hyde Park, the botanical gardens around the colonial Southern Hemisphere. Those were as important in a sense as, say, an opera house in, in Gold Rush, Australia. The botanical gardens was a sense of culture and worldliness. It was a triumph yes. of, of empire in a positive sense and also science of the day. But it was all about making the best knowledge of the time available to the most people as possible. Now we say would say now that that you know refer only to to white people, yes, maybe. But let's also admit that there was for starters working class people who might have some exposure to this. You know, uh, that's what these great public expressions of of space and recreation and possibly education opened up. I mean, that was unheard of. You know, you think back to like Louis, the Sun King's era, you know, Versailles, the beautiful gardens. Yeah, beautiful creations, but not for the hoi polloi, you know, mm -hmm. not for working people. Uh, not at all. Very, mm -hmm. very elitist, truly elitist in ways that we can't even conceive of. So when I think about what non-locality action at a distance means, I think of the conflict between the sea of electromagnetic radiation communications going on and the need for physical immediate contact traditional engagement, families, couples, teams. And I would say that Central Park is perhaps the, the, the most luminous example of that. It's, it's significant in size. If you get up in one of the buildings, the tall buildings, principally to the east, the west, and the south, but now also to the north, I mean, the, the view sort of from the Bronx back isn't quite the same or from Harlem back isn't the same, but it's remarkable how much space it is there. It's mm -hmm. intermixed into the, <clears throat> the technological uh, empire of the night as New York might be described. Uh, it has wildlife and habitat. Mm -hmm. It really is about the most democratic environment. I have a beautiful recording that uh, I made at the main lake where so many movies 
have been seen. And it's one of those places you have to, you know, almost recoup from all of these stories. Remember, uh, uh, again, the catcher and the rye, you know, the idea of where do the ducks go in winter? And I think I told the story, well, a lot of them stay in the park, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that information was wrong. Uh, but you, you know, you've got these nannies bringing kids down, speaking in all these different languages. And you've got old Jewish men who don't look like they were ever kids, right. you know, <laughs> playing chess and games. And you've got couples of all various kinds and you've got softball and you've got roller skating and you've got perverts and you've mm -hmm. got crime levels that go up and down and you've got homeless schizophrenic people and also the kind of bodhisattvas that the beats would have been more mm -hmm. you've got in a way it, it's as close to the kind of, of of um mingling of dream materialism and social turmoil as i think america is capable in a metropolitan environment and i think it's worth in contrasting that to say some um cities of literature like Burroughs interzone version of Tangier beautiful mm -hmm. that that intermittent sense you know of the, of a city square disappearing you know and buildings changing shape and we've talked a couple of times about the film the science fiction film dark city that changes mm -hmm. shape at night with the dreamers uh that's a, i think a lovely lovely idea um but a kind of the quantum nature of, of Central Park um, is where the non-locality sort of issue is. And I think, strangely enough, it predates quantum thinking in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, but when you think of the great modernist responses architecturally, they really are struggling with non-locality. <laughs> They're really, really struggling. And I think that the breakdown often, the effect, the effect in, in a, say, a public housing sense. Remember the giant sort of, I mean, unfortunately, they were all built together. But in, in cities like St. Louis, um, Helsinki has some very ominous, terrible, you know, and, and many parts of Britain tried to do the lower, uh, not big high rises, but more... Uh, like barracks, you know, mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm, was a little mm -hmm. bit more successful because you didn't have any blind corners and you didn't need elevators, which would always be broken down. And they were, you know, very hard to police these big ominous buildings. So I think what we got was the beautiful over, you know, non-locality of Central Park, its habitat, and organic possibilities of very local interactions, intimacies within this bigger framework, couples kissing, you know, bums mm -hmm. drinking, uh, people dancing, you know, very, very personal localized interactions and psychology. We lost that and we got instead very localized non-locality of sharing shared psychology we get mm, mm, you know mm. so it's a trade-off essentially 
So yes. the, the, the idea that you and I are resonating on here is, is that your external environment needs to do a certain amount of work for your interior. And when that exterior stops doing that, the internal becomes much more uh, uh, the same. I, um, exactly. Well said. There are these buildings when you uh, fly into South Korea, you fly into, it's not Itaewon, starts with an I. You fly into a, a city that's about an hour away from Seoul. There's no airport in Seoul. And you take a bus into Seoul. And Korea is a very lovely country, but when you're driving in, there's not a whole lot to look at. It's relatively flat. In all honesty, it kind of reminded me of Oklahoma. Uh, <laughs> and uh, which is maybe not what comes to your mind when you think of East Asia. But, you know, you have some uh, some farmhouses, some rice fields. Um, you see some beaten down trucks which it's always fun to see beaten down trucks from different countries because the, you know, they get the different models that we don't have. I like, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, um, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like liquor yeah. or cigarettes, you know, it's, it's same thing, but different parallel universe stuff. Yeah. But different. It's always been the same to them, but they have the most bizarre. And in my opinion, uh, one of the most unappealing uh, living situations out there, because what they'll do is there will be a field of absolutely nothing. And you know how Dubai is this completely astroturf city that just comes out of nowhere. Right. That's how they do these residential buildings that are about 30 stories high, very tall. And, but there will be clusters of about five of them. So you'll be driving around and there'll be nothing. And then you'll see these high rises, five of them together in a, in a kind of Pentagon shape. And then those will disappear and you'll drive down the road and you'll see another development of these high rises in the middle of nowhere and i have to imagine that these high rises are developed to have shopping within them to have sort of a grocery store and a gym and all of the amenities that you would need with the idea being that you know you can go to work and then you go home and then every errand that you need to run can be taken care of within these outside the city limits type places and that's just that's what that's what came to my mind with of these these buildings sort of huddling together not really decorating the landscape, but instead almost shrinking away from it and almost as though they're they're around a fire. Um, it's just a very strange way to design build. I've never seen anything like that in America. Well, I think that you you've done a great job though of of kind of decoding how not only how these structures and social hubs work but the thinking process of what has led to them, because I, th mm -hmm. and I think, you know, around the fire, I mean, you can imagine like an architect, uh, you know, and, and some sociologists getting together and thinking, well, we're really going to try to reinvent mm -hmm. the tribal connections of the caves and a very localized connect. We're going to try to create the possibility of very local as an intimate and communal sharing you know, but nevertheless, we're doing that within this completely bizarre framework that is completely against uh, intimacy. It's it's totally in favor of anonymity. 
So now the measure of these very planned, structured, not always well-made in terms of construction materials, and, and certainly not in America either, not just other parts of the world, uh, is this very, very weird J.G. Ballard sense of, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, and I just sent you a pic. This is, um, I don't know, did you get, it's a photograph that, uh, is uh i did it for oh. an architectural uh journal and but it's I like it, this it is getting there's picked a lot up. of mood to this there's a lot of mood to this this yeah, is this you. is exact this is what i'm talking about this is what i'm talking about the you know in the context of the photo that you took i think it's very beautiful but uh i would have to imagine there's a there's a beauty in passing these things and then there is the horrifying idea of living there. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. That's kind of the, for, for me, it, it really is a very modernist box situation of uh, a, a story building, not, not many, but stair by stair by stair with, with light frames that are very angular, rectangular. And it's just, it's so structured. There is a kind of passing visual beauty and it's shot at twilight in black and white just after with as the lights have come on but it is absolutely uh a kind of artifact a gem yeah. artifact of alienation yeah it, it's alienation given real architectural structure <laughs> you know it's like six shadow boxes stacked on top of each other with a what i love the most about it is the nondescriptness of everything. I mean, even the tree looks sad to be yeah. there. Yeah, the yeah. tree looks upset. And then you have this uh, sort of power box, or perhaps a trash can that's out, out front. I'm not really sure what to make of that. And then there's an access door for what I have to assume is the the manager, the security guy, whatever, just right. to the left of the first. Or no, that's prob- that's the stairwell obviously, right? That's what you would walk up to get to these other other levels. So the stairwell door matches or mirrors, I should say, the, the residential doors with the, you know, those strip mirrors, yes. those, I'm sorry, strip windows. They started those in schools and it was meant to keep kids obviously from being too distracted from, from looking out, but I've never thought of them as beautiful. They've always struck me as very uh, carceral. And so, so, so to put that on a, nice. what I have, what I assume is a, this is residential. Yeah. This is a, yes. a, a place where people live. I, I'm not sure why you wouldn't have a beautiful window that leads out onto wherever they're going. No, they're getting this, uh, uh, you know, uh, perpendicular widescreen view of the world, <laughs> you know, yeah. where, where the sides are cut off. That's such a, a such a gorgeous picture, but uh, I Thank thought you. that. To be honest, I thought that a lot when I was living in Korea. There are yes. many, 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 many beautiful places. Don't get me wrong. It is, it's an absolutely beautiful place, especially when you do go to Itaewon, the foreigner district with all the whorehouses and the and the drinking parlors and the and the drunk Koreans everywhere. It's it's really there's a lot of beautiful stuff. But there's also um, and I believe that this is you know, echoed in other East Asian countries like Japan, uh, parts of China, there's something just so uh, 
sinister about the utilitarianism of these buildings. Like this is a place where a person lives, which means what do they need? They need a living room, a kitchen, and a bathroom. How do we lay it out? In the most economical way possible. And any attempts at beauty have to come out of that economy rather than, you know, beauty being the first, the first thought. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, yeah, I think, I think that's great. Well, you know, the utilitarian sort of saw, I think is worth sort of picking up on there because that, that's something that, that looks different over time. In one sense, you'd say that, that utilitarianism in architectural terms is, is the equivalent of what you were saying earlier, the gimmick is no gimmick, which is an idea I, I want to return to from what that means, what that has come to mean from a writing point of view. I think that's, Ooh. A, yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, yeah. I know exactly but, where you're going with that. I you know, the, the other side of, uh, say, particularly like, well, Chinese architecture can get very whimsical and mm -hmm. very playful mm -hmm. and Jetson-y. But also you think about, uh, and I have a great fascination for Soviet-era architecture. The brutalist stuff? Brutalist and almond, you know, yeah, but also yeah. really rhetorical and intense with this, you know, it's the cosmonaut thing. It's it's oh. all American pride and imperial reversed, you know. Oh, I love Soviet brutalism, especially yeah. the abandoned ones. Yeah. You'll have these odd buildings that have almost like a Baba Yaga shack, right? Yeah. The leg, the legs are always very strange on these, where the the foundation will be much smaller than the surrounding building, but it'll be this great stone thing that has rooms that sort of jut out that give it this great appearance of a of a dresser where you've pulled all the drawers out, you know, and that's where the people live. Oh man, I can't, especially when moss starts to grow on some of these brutalist structures. Oh, stop, man. Oh, my God. I yeah, can't handle it. Yeah. It's just absolutely true. And, you know, that you just triggered a memory of, uh, you know, there, we come across things that we hear about that we think are really cool. And then for whatever reason, we just never get around to them. I just remembered a, a, a Russian novel that one of my mentor figures from long ago told me about and i've never got i think the translation is what and what we were laughing about at the time and thought was so cool was cement you mm. know that's the name mm. of the book have you ever heard of I've that i've heard of it yeah yeah, I've heard of cement. yeah. I, I think it's time well, i think it's time to rediscover that because that that is a beautiful example too i think of the gimmick being no gimmick, but it's still a cool gimmick. And mm -hmm. it's somehow a lot cooler than uh, like the MFA program at Middlebury, you know? <laughs> I'm going to send you, uh, this is a, a Soviet monument in Armenia. And when I looked up <laughs> on Pinterest, when I looked up Soviet brutalism, the first thing that popped up is almost exactly what I was just talking about. Um, I want to get your your take on these. So I'm sending them through right now. 
I love there's a there's a great building in in Bulgaria. Tashin books, by the way, to keep up our advertising. Yes, this is what we're talking about. This is exactly what we're talking about. See how it comes out like that? Like it's a, it looks like an accordion that's flopping over on its side. It's well, you can see that it's really, I mean, in addition to uh well, so much uh, general shape uh, mm-hmm. significance in terms of very archetypal images, you know, profiles, silhouette designs of power. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a real attempt to come to terms with uh, modern mathematics and, yeah. Yeah. and a fractal, you know, a deep s- fractalized worldview, you know. The other thing I want to send you, this is one of my favorite housing complexes that has ever been built. It is the, uh, it's the Alexandra Road Estate, AKA Rowley Way in London. I want to get, because this is in the same vein of what we're talking about here, but I, I, I want to see a movie set here. I'm sure there've been movies shot here, but this is the kind of structure. The only way I can describe it is, is that I've seen this in dreams before. I sent I sent through three pictures. Oh, oh, oh I have two. I have yeah. two. And that that's been an enormously influential style around the world. I mean, there's a quite a, a bit of resort in Mexico based on that. Quite a bit of, I mean, you can see that just down the road in Laughlin, Nevada, on the Colorado River. It's a deep, I mean, I actually I I think there's quite a bit of, of evidence of that uh in in say even in Seattle. But yeah. you can go to uh, Montevideo in, in Uruguay and see that happening. It's a very, I mean, that's a good example of where architectural structure penetrates or permeates, rather not penetrates, permeates giant scale cultural dreaming, yeah. you know, so yeah. that we do have that. And I I wish we had more filmmakers who were a little bit uh, more adept at, I mean, I think Lynch has some beautiful subtlety that way. Antonioni, you know, have you ever mm-hmm. seen Red, Red Desert? You know, that's got yeah, a, oh, yeah, yeah. Of, you know. What, can you tell me, can you tell me what, what that is? I'm showing him a picture of a structure from this estate. It's a, it's a, 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 a circle that looks like it has a door that's been opened. What is that for? Does it have well, a purpose? You know, it, it could be one of these beautiful, it could be out of Michael Heiser's city. It could be some beautiful. I know. Yeah. It, it, it has very Heiserian. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, I'm, it, the it only, really... the only thing I could think for this, whenever, when I look at this, because I play so much of the skateboarding game with my son, that structure in particular just looks like it was made for skateboarders to grind on. Basically, <laughs> I love that idea. And I got to tell you, uh, uh, there's a group of, of um, skateboarders who, you know, there are some big uh, storm drains around like, because when we have rain, there often is flash fl- flooding, but they've discovered it. But oddly enough, these these are aging skaters like you. They're, they're uh, yeah. it's a, it's a group of, of Latino dudes who mm-hmm. are dads. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, two mm-hmm. of them are dads now, and skaters and, are old school now, man. They're yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and they're doing the you know down in these concrete troughs that, mm-hmm. and their their perspective is well, 
these were obviously made for skate orders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And it makes me wonder if when these were made, if there isn't some kind of, you know, having a memory of the future type scenario where the architect didn't exactly know why they were being made. But one day this will be a sick place to do a nose grind for sure. This is pre-echo. This is my idea of pre-echo when you socialize it. Not individual pre-echo is, you know, in, in sort of the press view, deja vu sort of range. But when you, you start sharing that harmonic with other people, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, mm-hmm. well, that you look, this is why you, you know, you keep the ukulele out there. We yeah. want, you know, the, the, the old aging skater, biker, messiah, war god of, of yeah. you know, <laughs> repurposing and, and, Reskating, you know, with a bad knee, with a bad knee, by the way. I, uh, it's one, my knee is one of those things where it would take, it would just take exploratory surgery to find out what was wrong with it. And then who knows, however many other things to fix it. But uh, I bet we know what, I mean, if we could, it probably looks like just a mess of gristle inside, you know, yeah. already, even though you still have 36 Christmases to go. Maybe. I still have, I got to walk around for 36 more Christmases. On You may on not the, be walking. I know? might not be. Yeah. yeah. Don't take walking for granted. I mean, let's like go down to, uh, he might like go down to yours. Mexico and get some, get some stem cells, just inject them into my knee. Um, well, cool. That was a lot of fun. I think that we should nerd out on architecture more on the show. I'll provide pictures in the show notes so everybody can know what we're talking about. But uh, that's just so much fun for me because there's, you know, in Oklahoma City and Edmond and Norman, the the two satellite cities that I've lived in, um, they're, they are mostly what you might call pedestrian or basic suburbs. But Every once in a while, you can tell somebody just got a wild hair and decided to do something really cool. And I was driving around. Um, Rios has been volunteering at the zoo on weekends. Wow. And yeah, it's cool. She was helping to, uh, people can feed the giraffes. So she was providing the lettuce to feed the giraffes. The Oklahoma City Zoo, by the way, is fantastic. She told me that there there's, there's inner uh, within the the zoo community. There's snobbery about uh, other zoos, and so the Oklahoma City Zoo will go like the San Diego Zoo. They they don't have anything on us, but you, you know, um, for them, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a legitimate zoo pride. Zoo, zoo pride, exactly. <laughs> so I was my son fell asleep in the car. And I was going to walk him around the zoo while his mom volunteered for two hours. But uh, since he was asleep, I figured I would just start driving around. And that area of Oklahoma City, it's uh, Northeast 50th and, you know, Penn, all the major north-south roads. Uh, it's It's the black side of town. You know, it's got the Martin Luther King Street, which is the... And I think in every city, wherever there was a black neighborhood, there's a Martin Luther King Street. Um, and what's fascinating about Oklahoma City is just the distance between buildings, even within the city limits. It's like no other city I've ever been to. Because Oklahoma City has the largest uh, square mileage of any continental U.S. city. Alaska has it beat, 
right? Juno. The biggest footprint. The bit so it's 40 square miles. Yes, no other city. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, if you, like Anchorage and Juno and places like that, technically are bigger because their their city limits stretch to a bunch of uh, you know uninhabited land. But that's what Oklahoma City does too. So you'll be driving around this these neighborhoods, and <clears throat> you're in a city, and it feels like a city, but there's so much empty green space i'd love to take you sometime just on a tour of those kind of areas so you could get the vibe of what i'm talking about it's very very bizarre when you think about other cities that you've been to and how how cramped it is and how you know sort of teeming it feels that word teeming comes to mind oklahoma city is just much it's it feels like so much uh isolation and interiority in such a wide open space there's there's really nothing like it. I'm hoping that some of these programs, both from a CAD CAM point of view and also uh, gaming, you know, that are kind of like the Sims, you know, of of, of world building and mm. city building. I could see that being enormously educational for young people. I didn't have any of those. Op- it was entirely, uh, you know, interior. And mm-hmm. then the ability mm-hmm. to even draw it and, and to get it visualized in that sense was, was tricky enough. But to three-dimensionally do it, very difficult. I think there'd be a lot to be learned from that. And I think that um, one of the things that would be really exciting to see, and you know, if we had billions, you know, we talk about what we would do and what we would fund, you know, the bizarre and interesting research projects and great outsider artists doing very weird things. I think it would also be interesting to look at how different groups of people would construct cities differently, neighborhoods yeah. differently, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to really visualize that and to to uh, to make them concrete in some pretty fundamental mm-hmm. way and to see if these ideas translate into psychological harmonies and communality and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, does that work or, um, you know, because it's difficult to, to renovate neighborhoods. Think about, you know, that's a, it's often seen as a, a bad thing because it's outside money coming in and flushing out, uh, older populations you mentioned that uh, neighborhood in uh, El Paso you think about like what happened to uh, the ninth ward in New Orleans because of Katrina mm-hmm. just literally mm-hmm. and they try to rebuild you know Brad Pitt was trying to sort of reconstruct it with some of those same designed houses but have you if you look at and here he is doing this with the best of intentions really mm-hmm. and 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 very uh, solid materials, craftsmanship. But you look at those new versions of the old, which are gone, and you think, oh, no, you can't have new old shoes. You know, it's like the torn jean thing. It just looks stupid. You know, it looks Mm -hmm. really trashy and stupid. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it, it just there's a level of character and depth and historical mm-hmm. context that needs to be, uh, you know, to be worn in. But I love the idea of um, looking more at Soviet brutalism. I think that's a fabulous uh, 
topic to investigate. There's some great visual resources. Some of this also fits into the archaeology sort of framework of hauntedness and Mm -hmm. abandoned structures. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that links in with, with, you know, American versions of that. And I think that's an interesting sort of parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thought occurs to me is to look at, you know, we, we now have, you know, still three superpowers of Russia, China, and America, and there's concern about militarism, you know, conflicts. It's interesting to look at visions, architectural visions, you know, uh, remember that Jim Morrison line, I said, you know, the dead will be left with too many buildings. Mm. Well, how do, what if we take all the people out for a moment and just look at these civilization so to speak from a purely architectural framework what would be the psychological take you know i think that's a really interesting way to look at those three very different major uh culture national organizations of our time yeah let's take a tour let's do a soviet a chinese and uh and an american tour i think that'd be really cool i think it's that that is a cool idea Some good things discussed. I'd like, but I think the underlying is tying into the Lost Explorers theme of psychogeography, psychonavigation, that all of these experiences are absolutely and inescapably psychological experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. is that is the depth. There's no escape from that. And but rather than try to escape from it, what would it mean for us to really embrace that? The mm-hmm. sense that these are happening extremely locally within our imaginations, our minds. How do we get more articulate in describing those experiences without becoming more distanced within ourselves? How do we get more participatory within the ceremony of our imaginations? the ceremonial processing and navigation of these these worlds. I love that. Participatory in the ceremony of our imaginations. It's a great line. I think that's a good start. I think, funny enough, I think that's a a great way of putting it. Um, So I was thinking about hell. Yeah! <laughs> and <laughs> so what I did, what I did was I listed out uh, uh, circles, circles of, of this kind of hell, and I listed different millennial problems and what their particular punishments might be. And some of them are uh, a bit more sad. So I'll start with them. Uh, there would definitely be a circle of hell for opioid addiction. Okay. Punishment of which would be very simple, constantly being uh, in withdrawal, right? Just a constant oh, state of yearning. Okay. And that's ugh, like I yeah, said, it's sad. Yep, yeah. yeah, sad off the bat, but it gets funny. Um, the next one that I was thinking about would be a kind of a consumerist hell. So, but many people of my generation have also worked in retail. So I think that millennials, while they're also uh, agents of consumerism, I think my generation was uniquely on the other side of that fence. We were more of the 
um, the helper class or the servant class to the boomers and the Gen X people who were looking to buy things. So most millennials that I know have worked some kind of retail job. And if you're a millennial who then grew up and just enacted the same consumerist tendencies that those people did, you'd go to this circle where you're working in retail and every day a customer will come in and they will shove their hand up your ass because you're a puppet and they will move you around the store to do what they, what they want to do. Um, there is uh, the sin, I think, of trend chasing, of, of trying to go viral, of, of doing things that you've seen. So this would be a kind of jackass style level of hell where people would do increasingly gross things. I was thinking that, you know, putting larger and larger beads in your urethra and things like that, all for the camera, you know, all to all for it to be seen. Separation from family is a big one, right? Leaving your family. So the punishment for this one would be an eternity spent at a constant Thanksgiving dinner where you are a ghost. You cannot speak. You cannot be seen. You simply have to exist with your family and listen to them. Um, There it was. Where am I on this? Um, I'm liking these, David. Yeah. (laughs) The Oh, of course. Uh, So uh, hypochondria, fear of infection. So you're you're placed into a a, a kind of uh, a, a leper ward or something. My I don't want to put anybody on blast, but somebody very uh, close to me in my in my immediate family came to visit, and she had a huge cyst on her head, and she is just so open about everything. She just talks about these things, and she kept saying, "David, look at it, look at it," and I would say, "I don't want to look at it." That's just, that's so gross. And she would hold, and I love her. I love her to death. She was staying over here. Uh, I love her to death. But she was using apple cider vinegar to to loosen up the material inside of the cyst. And so my whole house reeked of uh, apple cider vinegar while she was doing this. And she's like, I think it's loosening it up. I can feel some of the fluids starting to come out. So that situation would be a millennial hell, people coughing into your mouth. Uh, people not wiping their hands after using the restroom and then coming over and, you know, uh, putting their fingers in your mouth. Um, and then the, the idea that I didn't get to yet, there were two ideas that I didn't get to cause I was having so much fun with our conversation. Uh, there's one about the urge to travel. Um, and I don't think a lot of people would look at that as a sin. I love to travel as well, but that kind of restlessness, the, the, the unmoored inability to be comfortable in a place where you are. I didn't think of a proper punishment for that one. And then of course the never ending Twitter, some kind of punishment for being too online. So that's what I've got. Okay. You know, you have just really, uh, you're, you're in a good groove. Well, not that you're not always, but this has been especially entertaining. I am just so enjoying images in a david lynch cronenberg sense of the of the cyst talking you know yeah this this beloved relative being a little bit too sharing too much (laughs) but on the other hand well you know because it's growing in my mind so Mm -hmm. i'm seeing the cyst as being coming kind of like a parasitic head Mm -hmm. and i love the fact that there's this olfactory 
you know, implication of, you know, cider apple vinegar sort of smells sort of permeating. So the cyst is, is really communicating on a range of levels. And mm-hmm. just the word cyst you know, it's just kind of not now, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good word for what it is. Yeah. 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 Um, No, I like that. I like the idea of the cyst talking and it's like a puppet that has a mouthful of Vaseline. And whenever it talks, it says, and the Vaseline is just coming out of it. You know, some very old school practical effects that would, I feel with the proper sound effects, would really hammer that point home about it being gross. But there's something about millennials, particularly with COVID, but in general, this kind of fear of germs and boogers and vomit and, you know, butt smell, genital smell, like everything has to be sterilized and clean that I think it would be really funny to torture them with all those things. I do too. And, you know, this really does translate into some very ominous statistics uh, in terms of, of real physical intimacy and sexuality and uh, some trends in, you know, in dating and, you know, humping and bumping that's not happening. And it's it's really percolating down and, and affecting Gen Z as well, too. So mm-hmm. that's this real it 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 it's I think shows that our our when we were talking about and we're keep talking about embodiment versus disembodiment, that this is a real problem because I mean you even mention just the word smell sometimes to certain age groups, what millennials some millennials and and gen z there's almost a cringe just there it's not like a a beautiful smell an aroma fragrance no no it's like Mm -hmm. you know it's something to worry about you know so Mm -hmm. there's really uh good things going on there i enjoyed that thoroughly um i you know also i thought with the you know the the re the, the customer service angle uh, it occurred to me you could do a really just basically, you know, straight up comedy sketch about some people having to, in a restaurant sense, wait on themselves, mm-hmm. you know, deal mm-hmm. with themselves as, you know, I know I a, like a few who, who would just, that would, that would be hell. Mm-hmm. That would be mm-hmm. hell. And they would actually admit that they would say, yeah, I, oh, I'd hate to, to have to serve me, you know? And it's like, well, maybe it's time for a change no i've had i've had two conversations one of them was with this relative and the other one was with a a close friend of mine and both of both of them have a lot of idiosyncrasies a lot of quirks you might say and you know they they would ask me for advice so i'm trying to be practical about it i'm trying to sort of explain to them steps that they could take to to get rid of some of these idiosyncrasies or in some cases addictions that they might have and they would just say uh well no i i can't i couldn't i couldn't do that and what it made me what, what it made me understand what you're talking about with the people who wouldn't want to wait on themselves is that the human mind is so fascinating in its ability to understand what's wrong with it and then 
be completely unwilling to take even the smallest steps to fix it. You look at those people and you think, well, I mean, then I guess you're stuck. I guess there's nothing you can do then. If if you know what the problem, to my mind, because I'm a big self-improvement guy, did I tell you that I've been uh, eating ants? I told you that, right? I don't know if you did. I've been taking no, a supplement. I remember it's, that. I mean, I know. Yeah, yeah. So my supplement regimen right now is uh, polyrachis ants mixed with cordyceps mushroom. Uh, I'm taking shilajit, which is volcanic, a volcanic mineral that's rich in fulvic acid. And then ormus, which is actually gold. So I'm supplementing gold inside of my body. Uh, We've officially gone fringe here. We've gone fringe. We've gone totally fringe. Wow, you're uh, you're lost exploring out on the on yeah. the perimeter uh, again. The fam. ants, the ants, the ants. I highly recommend. It's called Ant Power. It's from Dragon Herbs, and it makes you much stronger because, like supplements, like an ant can lift a hundred times its body weight. Sympathetic so, magic. Yeah, yeah eat, eating them makes you stronger, and it also it also. Uh, Let's just say it increases sexual potency. So there's a little bit of horny goat weed going on. So I think you get a kick out of it. I think you get a kick out of the power. Okay. Um, but uh, but what I I guess what I was saying with all that is that I'm willing to try various things to alleviate some. If I have a problem, I approach it from okay. Well, let's experiment. Let's see what works. What doesn't. And whether it's the person who wouldn't want to wait on themselves or if it's, you know, one of these uh, friends or relatives who knows what their problem is, but refuses to fix it. uh, I can't, I can't conceive of doing that. You know, if I really have a problem, really have a problem, I want to fix it. If I don't, then, then I won't, but I don't, I don't inhabit this world where I torture myself with, uh, with problems that, that I have no intention of fixing. Look, I think this could be a fabulous script to turn over to Cronenberg. I really do. The mm-hmm. self-improving dad, mm-hmm. Oklahoma, you know, and and I love the idea of because I mean ants are so intense, and mm-hmm. as you know, Lewis Thomas said, you can never talk about a single ant. There's no mm-hmm. point in doing that, and and the real the the vibrating. Uh, chemical secretion world of ants they're dealing with communication structures and ideas Mm -hmm. that and termites are another example too you know and you think of the giant ant nests and and termite mounds around the world that magnetic humming you know and deep down in the systems talk about architecture you know Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people like, you know, Rupert Sheldrake, a lot of people are interested in where does that architectural idea come from? Well, the ant mind, so to speak, you can't talk about an ant mind. You can't really even talk about an ant nervous system, maybe. But you certainly have to when you talk about colonies. And uh, I think I may have mentioned at some point when um, uh, I have uh, a, a friend in Australia who's one of the leading entomologists and ants are his thing because Australia is particularly intense. And he came up to my property, the chimneys in central gold rush, Victoria, and had a real look around. And he said, yeah, you are absolutely right. You have an amazing ant population. You have an ant city right next to your studio. 
that is continuous over 10,000 years. Mm. You know, I mean, the ment- so you're, you're accessing mm-hmm. not just uh, obvious sort of archetypal sympathetic magic traits of physical strength, virility, those things, of course, you can see why those might, but some, you're also getting maybe ant, well, no, you have to be implicitly, what can only be described as ant psychology, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is a terrifying, courageous, mysterious thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that you you might need to supplement that with some new musical directions of Mm -hmm. a kind of mishmash of maybe North African, uh, maybe Gregorian chant, but to take on the, and and God knows, to to try to find what ant music would be like Mm -hmm. and to see how that might resonate with some of the physical effects. I would go for some Gregorian chant. I like that a lot. I also like the uh the um the throat singing. Yeah. I really that, that's that. I that's I could see that. I could see that. Well, throw that into the mix and see if that sort of, you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all of these, I mean, alertness and uh potency or mulebriety, which is what the female equivalent is. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people don't know that word. I think it's a lovely word. Um wetness and horniness and just excitement you know mm-hmm. those things definitely do go with uh just physical energy and mm-hmm. and and mental acuity you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so gene, a lot of stuff would be going gene. on at once you know yeah 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 it's uh it was oh <clears throat> also uh reishi mushroom it's so fascinating now that we live in a time where for a combined like all, of all the supplements that I have, I spent about 120 bucks, and I'm on a regimen that Chinese emperors were on back in the day. Uh, cord- wild cordyceps mushrooms. The the emperor would have his servants go out and harvest. It's very difficult to harvest cordyceps in the wild, and it would all go to him. He'd make tea out of it, and he would be the sole beneficiary of this. And we live in a time now that you can just go do this. You can live like a Chinese emperor, even if you live in a you know eighteen hundred square foot house in Oklahoma. What a time to be alive! Well, that's good to remember. I think a lot of people don't. You know, um, a lot of people really have no concept of that at all, and mm-hmm. it, it's quite bizarre. I mean, almost there's no way to understand our own era but certainly any relationship to relatively recent ones uh without appreciating just the enormous variety and 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 luxury and convenience and horizon you mm-hmm. know on every level that we have access to if we choose to have that horizon optimism gratitude point of view Absolutely. Do you have a tool and a tip for us? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And the tool is is something I would genuinely like uh, listeners to help me with. I'm 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 going to keep um, seeking whenever I can get any feedback, research, input from people. I'm I'm 
open to many, many ideas for my memory and consciousness book. But I'm thinking particularly of the situation which I know people have, very common, specifically when a song gets in your head. I would greatly appreciate if people would journal about that experience and to I, I want people sharing. I want more information on this to see how this connects, indexes or conflicts with my experience. But I think that if you do and journaling about anything about the body, you know, we've we we are supporting journaling just all the time. And David sent me a beautiful uh, shot of of one of his journal pages and it just looks fantastic it's just it's it's visual but it, there's text it's just it fits in with a great tradition of of world uh handwritten manuscripts uh but particularly this phenomenon for me of like of get having a song get in one's head because as I've journaled that, and I think this is true about the, you know, when you have a record to go back to, you you can really, um, a lot of misconceptions fade away because you, you you see again, oh, and that's when that happened. And it particularly helped, it's helpful if you if you date them. But I found that that, and this fits in with a much bigger theory of mine, that yes, there are instances <clears throat> when a song gets in my head, I, I've just been exposed to it mm -hmm. you know and i could start singing a song right now which would get in your head and mm -hmm. get in our listeners heads and everyone would be really pissed off with me it's very easy to do and a lot <laughs> of popular song has been constructed with that idea in mind earworms me you know very malicious viral memes that have a a, a sinister or at least an insidious um psychology to them and at some point we're going to have i had a, an amazing experience in this regard getting into i was listening to uh something else on youtube and i got locked into a beautiful uh anthology of music from the 1930s and 40s most of stuff not famous you know mm -hmm. just well-crafted fodder of the day but anyway when I have journaled about this song getting in my head, because of course I'm thinking about the nature of memory and how much control we have of forgetting and on and on. One thing I found is that very often it, it I can't pin down why the song appeared. It isn't as simple as all oh, was playing in the men's room, you know, mm -hmm. when I went to have a pisses in the airport or, you know, at school or wherever, or there isn't a physical or to use a term, there wasn't a localized connection. The 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 interaction seemed to be non-local, somewhat yeah, magical. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Interior directed. And this has really raised a lot of questions for me in, in, in the memory work. Um, because, of course, then the big question is, why? What triggered that? But... I'm coming to build a kind of architecture, which I'm going to need more help from you on as this idea really builds to a book. Because I really do want it to be an architecture, not some sort of general nice, but kind of still ambient idea. I want it structural. That 
an apparently meaningless or insignificant song that pops in your head has deep significance because it's not, in fact, a single artifact at all. It really should be seen as an oscillating waveform of verb, of process, of very complex associative patterns that may have resonances with other people, I'm sure they do, but are also deeply significant to my personal psychological structuring. So if I can just, what that experience of this apparently trivial song, maybe it's I've gotten a glimpse in a distant window of a reflection of some part of a very deep grammar of, mm-hmm. of connections. And for whatever reason, it was important in that moment. So some part of me is just shot, you know, a little clue out going, hey, this song actually is significant or the the moment of its reappearance of the need for that memory, the need mm-hmm. for that memory. So the tool is, as always, try to journal as much as you can. But one way to focus on tactically in the short term is if people could be very alert to when a song pops in their head. See, first of all, was there a, a, an apparent, an easily apparent causal influence that other people would go, oh, I heard that song and now I'm, go- I'm now, you know. Um, I was in the shower this morning and Ace of Bases, the sign came into my head. I haven't heard that that song in months, if not years, but it just popped in. Interesting, because earlier when you were talking about architecture and in in the context of, uh, well, Seoul, South Korea, I was thinking of, it triggered a memory of, of some real engagement for me with the architecture of Hong Kong. And at that particular moment in time, for whatever reason, I was going to this very dubious nightclub for drinks, and it was often raining. And the Ace of Bass song, All That She Wants is Another Babe Who's On. They played that a lot. And it was all, you know, it was there was no reason historically that, you know, it was just on a sound thing. And it happened to be when I would go in and out. And I haven't thought of Ace of Bass. That would be the only way I would think of them is that, yeah. song, you know. So synchronicity. Yeah. The uh the another cool synchronicity that just happened uh when you were talking about uh um the writing down your songs and stuff, I had a sudden flash that I wanted to tell you about a a design book. This doesn't have to do with with songs or being in the it was just a flash, right? It's like, oh, remember to tell Chris about that design book that you heard of. And it was a design for um visual design for for magazines, right? The kind of um, what was the name of that magazine that used to be devoted to design? Uh, I can't remember what it was called now. Anyway, so two words popped into my head: design and Meyer. I had this idea that the person who had written it was Nate, last name was Meyer, and I typed that in. Didn't find the thing that I was looking for, but the first thing that came up on my uh, Google search was a book called The Design of Concrete Structures by Christian Meyer. We were just talking about concrete. I love how those things. Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. But but I think that's a really cool idea. This is something that's fascinated me before on numerous occasions. 
because like you said, there are the time, the times when uh, you'll hear something in a target or whatever. There are other times where um, sometimes I'll, a friend or Rios will say a phrase and it'll remind me of a, of, of a song lyric and I'll get it stuck in my head. Um, and then other times like that Ace of Bass song, it's much more mysterious. Yeah. It just kind of comes out, out of nowhere. And, you know, I said the sign, but it might have actually been all that she wants that was in my head. I'm trying to remember uh, which one it actually was. But I wonder if that song didn't pop up specifically so that we could have this conversation about that song pop. See, these are, these get into some very deep questions and I'm, I I love talking because you under, you really get, and I think this is exactly Mm -hmm. where so many things meet. It's kind of an interdimensional central park where many ideas and, and concepts and values and flows and oscillations of energy feel comfortable mingling and time completely changes shape and we see causal relationships differently and we break up those structures of prediction and are really we're we're welcoming surprise we're the welcome ambush is, is possible and joyful and keeping us alert and we realize that structures that too firmly delimit order and time and sequence and already pre-packaged, pre-digested meaning, you know, that's, that's death. That's death of the mind and soul all at once. And it's death of the body too, that no, no ant powder is going to resurrect the loss of vitality that, that emerges from that, you know, the anchoring and armoring of, of, you know, it's like you can see a, a pier covered in starfish, you know. Is what we're talking about right now makes me think. So this this tool is this this makes me think of another tool, which outside of songs, if a thought comes into your head at any given time, no matter how absurd, maybe not if it's too, you know, dark or whatever, but if a random thought comes to you, the next person you meet maybe just say that thing whether it's a stranger or not if it's a gas station clerk say i was just thinking about ace base and see what happens like because what if all of a sudden they're like i was thinking about ace of base too well it's a <laughs> what, great what would dunk. we find out you know like what would we how we could find some really fucking cool synchronicities i think uh- Absolutely. I, I I totally support that. And at minimum, it's a fantastic diagnostic because if you run into go, someone who goes, what the hell, pal, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> well, you learned something there then too. You yeah. know, you've yeah. used the welcome ambush as a way of, of flushing someone out and finding out. And, and who knows where, I think if we had the energy the optimism and just the mischief, the mischief of exploration and a little bit of experimentation, we would get so much more out of the world. We'd get a lot more information. We'd get a lot more information of unpredictable content, which would in turn inspire us to take more risks and engage with people more. 
you know, in more. It would be so cool. I nobody, hope. you, nobody encounters people like this. Un- unfortunately, the only time we really encounter this is when we have unpleasant associations with schizophrenic people. Schizophrenic people will will say whatever is on their mind, and it's usually, you know, they're in their own personal hell. So it's not usually very fun. Uh, I've had plenty of conversations with them and found them to be very enlightening in their own way. But the worst thing that's going to happen is if it's a gas station and you keep doing this, they're just going to know you as the weird guy. And how cool is it to be the weird guy? Yeah. Yeah. It's cool, man. Uh, Like that guy's, that guy's really weird. He asked me about Ace of Base yesterday. He told me he was thinking about ants today. And then he showed me a picture of Soviet brutalist architecture. Like, I don't know what's going on with that dude. He's weird, but I like him. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I could, I think that that is just exactly right. You know, have a little courage, have a lot more fun, you know? And also, I mean, who knows what windows you might open up for other people and just having a bit of, freedom and confidence and groove yourself that might be just what exactly somebody and oftentimes you find that that conspiracy you know that Mm -hmm. sense of just enjoyment of you know i was thinking back to uh uh i did a laundry of my my really soft comfortable uh hot orange tabasco shirt t-shirt and I think I told a story about I was walking into, a, you know, a 7-Eleven and this woman was coming out with her family and husband, you know, and kids. And she had this same shirt on and, you know, she just come, you know, and we arm and arm. She's, well, we're going to have to run off, you know, mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. clearly. Mm-hmm. And it was just so I mean, it was a full on touching me. You know, it was just like it was great. It was theater improvisation and some fun between total strangers and everybody grooved with it. It lifted the mood up, you know, Mm -hmm. and if we had a little bit more courage and we're not so afraid of what people think, that would be a better, a better world. And we'd also find out more about our secret mechanisms, which Mm -hmm. would give us more Mm -hmm. confidence and which would help other people find out a bit more about theirs, you know, be a little more teacherly. I'm about this cargo prophet, old school skater, shaman, weirdo, ant eater, uh, mushroom taker, father. I'm embracing this uh, bizarre gift that the universe has given me. I'm into it because I was thinking about it as you were talking and the person who I am most comfortable doing that around is Rios. Any thought that comes into my head, sometimes I'll get into these uh, comical, uh, not manic, but sort of just goofy jester states where I'm just saying nonsense around the house and it cracks her up. She thinks, she thinks it's hilarious, but all I'm doing is just saying whatever pops into my mind. Sometimes it's vulgar, sometimes it's absurd, sometimes sometimes it's it's incredibly serious, which makes it funny in the context. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just opening the channel between my, you know, 
the 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 constant slideshow that's going on up here and the mouth and it's a really fun almost ecstatic experience to do that i love doing that so you could just do that with strangers because who cares listen exactly but i think that is a great tribute to uh your relationship and your marriage that to have that that freedom and that that fundamental simple but also deeply magical joy of just letting that flow through and not having to restrain that and think about you know what it would be like to suppress and turn all that information on in on itself and how mm -hmm. that might deform your whole interior sense of being so that you'd be in this constant mode of implosion and sort of the soul version of of neuropathy and cramp you know mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. and that is you know clearly what what happens uh you know to some people but here's another thing that made me think about um because you're you've also one of your streams of interest of late has been ancestor investigation mm -hmm. right ancestor mm -hmm. hail mm -hmm. money ancestor magic uh I was interacting with uh, Angus Artichoke, the AI language system, doing my little, you know, ping pong with it. And uh, my version of ancestor worship turned into anteater worship, which I think is so, I mean, I love giant anteaters. I think they're beautiful. Uh, but so, and you're eating ants and involved with ancestors. You they know? make cool shoes too. Anteater yeah. shoes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're ready for yeah. the tip. I feel like we're really vibing on this one. There's a lot of sinks and yeah, there's, a there's, a, there's a there's an energy to this one that I'm that I'm really grooving on. The tip is one that builds on this because part of uh something we've been talking about from the very beginning, it's and it's it's certainly in my creative writing text, and it's something I'm really working on in the memory. Breaking linearity, you know, dimensionalizing linearity. This is all about going the, the locality versus non-locality. It's about uh, arithmetic versus geometry. It's about navigating in both space and space-time. It's just so fundamental to Bates' idea about the value of a message is its unpredictability and stepping free of the prediction structures of harmony and pattern recognition where we lose the appreciation of the design. You know, linearity does that to us. We're dependent on it in certain ways, but we get the cause and effect chain of, of events thing and we lose the river. You know, we talked about that in an earlier episode. I'd rather have, I'd rather be dealing with rivers than chains. I think mm -hmm. most people would. Mm -hmm. Okay. One way to do that is in, in a model that I use is the, is the shooting gallery, the carnival shooting gallery. A lot of my ideas formed when I, because of the carnival, because I, I worked in carnivals when I was younger. So you've got two planes, okay? Say ducks or birds, whatever, okay? So they are linear. There's, there's a linearity to them, but they're offset. And I've been doing this with my blowgun practice, okay? So I've got two rectangular targets about the same size. 
they're in parallel planes, but slightly offset. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there yeah. is a distance between them. There's a slight depth of field. Now, say you've got 20 darts on one side for one size blow gun, 20 for the rather than shoot the 20 at the one and then shoot 20 at the other, go backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm, shift mm-hmm. backwards and forth in just pure physical terms all you're doing you think is just it's mainly eye adjustment depth of field slight mm-hmm, distance mm-hmm. they say there's six inches difference between them not much you know over you know over 40 30 feet you know not much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that play in your mind and the way it changes physical posture because i find that the, the stance is absolutely essential. It mm-hmm. really affects the breathing. It's much more important than the eyes. Because uh, I stopped using my eyes often blindfold. I was sort of Zen blow gunning. I don't think, I mean, you know where the, you know, it's much more the, the, the smaller things, a posture and, and seeing mm-hmm. the diaphragm, so to speak. But try to imagine that as a, as a metaphorical tool, you can transpose to other activities. That alteration of target focus, mm-hmm. you know, moving back, just just slight variation of doing that. Are they are they are they offset on the X and the Y, or just on the X? Just do it on the X to start with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you okay. can you can move on from there, but mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. even that slight break opens up new channels of thinking how far are they offset oh maybe four to six inches okay not much yeah. at the start yeah i like that not yeah. much at the yeah. start and mm-hmm. it really it you can even have them completely mirrored in the same plane but just to alternate the target so you don't focus on say a round of 20 darts in one and then in then the other right you know right so try cool. to move that to other uh, other activities. It's a great thing to try to apply that to a writing exercise. But let me boil that down to a little emblematic totemic phrase, because this simple thing brings it to life. This is an analogy frame. A ladder is to walking as a bridge is to blank. Okay. I mean, you have an answer that you fill in the blank, right? So in a Batesian mm-hmm. sense, we we complete the thing. There is information missing, but we have a pretty easy time of doing that. So we've got two things going on in that phrase. We've got rhetorical balance. X is still that, is that okay, we've got an equation, but we've got linearity. We definitely have linear, but notice how the linearity has shifted. It's dimensionalized. The ladder is going up. The bridge Mm -hmm. is going thin. So we've got an X and Y axis. And we really have a conceptual, another level of depth that the the magic of the analogy or the metaphor has given us. It's not really a linear progression. Mm -hmm. Linearity Mm -hmm. does not solve that equation. If we go back to that, we've dimensionalized a linear process in that sort of shooting gallery uh, decoupage, that art technique of, of using multiple copies and just staggering them. But it it's that depth of field 
that uh, and that oscillation between different focal points, which is exactly, I think, what you were talking about when with Lautner's idea of disappearing space. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that translates it to is an architectural technique. And it's done with different, often with windows and changes of light. Uh, it's done with ceiling heights. You know, there are physical gimmicks that mm-hmm. bring that to life in a stage magic sense. But the intentionality is changes in depths of field as focal mechanisms of attention, which then returns back to us greater potential of alertness. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a moment. You know, pay attention, you know, that terrible mm-hmm. metaphor built into that. So you have to, you know, pay, give. What if you got alertness back from your attention? What mm-hmm. if this was beautiful, energizing, sir, not a trance, mm-hmm. you know, actional deal, but a yeah, re- cultivation. Yeah. And that's what we hope relationships and interactions are. That's the difference in so many levels, you know, perfunctory action versus real engagement versus real intimacy. And I think we can apply that completely within ourselves, the intimacy with our own inner landscapes, worlds, uncontacted peoples, you know? Mm -hmm. That's great. That's awesome. What has your dream landscape been like? Okay. I see I sent you a photograph of a famous uh, obscure character. Actors are always a little bit obscure. I didn't know what her name is, but I I didn't have any trouble in finding her. Uh, She was in just tons of shows and was the kindly grandmother, but also a very, very effective uh, villain. If, if the case she's in the first episode of the 1960s show, The Invaders, uh, where Roy Thinnis spots a UFO landing is in on the conspiracy. She's a great role in that. So the first aspect of the dream, I had a dream where I actually was engaged in what I felt was a very necessary murder because she was a landlady who was really more like the the building super or manager. She Mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. the authority figure, but could claim not to be the the ultimate money authority of the whole thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she was very, just really, really kind of creepily suggesting that I had to remove not just any of my art in the building publicly, but all of the art that I had in my own space. And there was an escalating tension where I realized finally, I'm going to have to kill that woman. And I have not recorded a murder, a really cold blooded intentional murder dream in a very, very long time, very long time. So that's when, but then this is just such a beautiful, beautiful idea. And you can hear the harpsichord music and you can see the public space. I mentioned Louis, the Sun King and the Versailles Gardens. Well, mm-hmm. because it was in a dream. Absolutely sensational. 18th century, 17th century France. 
clockwork mechanisms reach mm. a pinnacle of art mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and automata you know mm-hmm, amazing mm-hmm. machines talk about an appreciation of robotics well in the dream this has gone to another level and there are these beautiful gilded clockwork soldiers and amazing animals that are like you know moving very almost living merry-go-round figures for the nobility all these phenomenal artificial entities and they go revolutionary and talk about iRobot clockwork automata set versailles garden robots gone completely reign of terror yeah yeah wouldn't that be beautiful it would be beautiful and you've triggered a couple things so i want to talk about the first one first okay my first thought is that that is a incredibly on the nose dream (laughs) down to the fact that it's a woman not to get too controversial on this show uh you know she wants to take the art away you got to kill her that's all there is to it um but your second dream just triggered something that I think is a really cool idea because you're talking about these clockwork automata, uh, you know, uh, the pinnacle of the beauty of this uh, materialist Descartian idea of machine intelligence, right? This is actual beautiful machine intelligence. So what 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 it triggered in me is that we are downstream now in 2023 from those ideas, from the idea that the brain works like a clock. We've since updated that to saying that the brain works like a computer. Of course, you and I know that the brain isn't a computer. It's not a clock. It's it's none of those things. But the metaphor, the metaphor that we've lived by has fleshed out into this. And it made me suddenly think that your dream, this vision of this kind of pinnacle of beauty coinciding with a destructive revolutionary impulse, to me is saying that every idea, even an idea that you and I find to be not so stimulating, and that has clear material consequences in the world that we live in right now, Every idea goes through a growth period where it reaches a pinnacle of beauty. And that's when it's at its most useful. And that's when it should be annihilated. That's when it should self-immolate. That's when it should rise up and fight and be destroyed. And then we start over again. So what if in 2023, what this dream is telling me is that we are now about 300 years after that dream reached its potentiality, you know, it, it came. It, we never destroyed it. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Like every, every idea is like, that's, I don't know why, but that to me seems like one of the coolest ideas I've heard recently, all from this dream that you had that there is that every idea has its value cyberpunk cyberpunk had its 
you know, in the eighties, it got to this point where it was really cool and the neon, the robots and the artificial limbs, wouldn't it be cool to have gorilla arms and, you know, uh, uh, be able to, to access the entirety of human knowledge inside your own brain. Once that was manifest within aesthetic confines to its peak point, that idea should have been abandoned and we should have started over. And now we're just, we're still there. I think that's just, I mean, it's a beautiful Greek idea. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I think it's, you could see it. It's one way of looking at some of our, uh, you know, really mercurial, uh, quixotic geniuses who are are sort of protean and chameleon and mm-hmm. uh, Picasso, Miles Davis. You know, they they get something perfected and they they leave it. You know, yeah. they just yeah. they abandon yeah. that, done that. And I think that that is a great aesthetic and moral imperative to have, which we override and we try to squeeze the life out of it and repeat it and, and just pump it into the ground. So we take, I mean, that you have really, I think that is the deep, deep structural mechanism of how poetic insights and epiphanies become cliches. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. It isn't just purely overuse in a repetition sense, because a lot of things do survive that. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot, there are thousands of words that survive an enormous amount of repetition, thousands of ideas that survive mm-hmm. an enormous repetition and don't just completely suck dry. But there are certain things that and that get a trend mode. They're they're harmonically connected with a vibe, a zeitgeist. And they are working like gangbusters mm-hmm. and it's like a, a drum groove, you know, it is, it is working and building and, and just so act. And then you think, no, got to move on. And, you know, that is one of the things about West African drumming. I've, I've learned like of, of, you know, that, that, that polyrhythmic sense, it isn't, it's more about abandonment than it is about continuance. Mm, interesting. You know? interesting. Which is what you're saying. The, the, yeah, the continuity yeah. is there in a sense because the group energy continues and you still have acoustical energy and sound and vibration. Yes, yes, that does continue. But the continuity is really an illusion because motifs, rhythmic motifs in this case, have this great emergence this great success almost Mm -hmm. like in a biology sense like a species and then they go no we're out yeah think of the popularity of the steampunk genre right steampunk is popular because it posits that the apex of our uh, mechanical materialist paradigm was in the early 19th century and so you go back to that kind of the clockwork stuff, the gears, yeah, the, the uh, you know the obligatory steam, the top hats, the goggles, the fashion, the aesthetics, all of that peaked right there. And we're pin, we're basically saying that this was really cool for this period of time, 
and then the ideas spiritual and uh you know resonance died and we just kept doing it we kept dancing with that corpse all the way to 2023 and now look what we've got iPhones not as cool as steampunk nothing is cool in, in, a, in a design um mm-hmm. techno sense i was actually in it best buy looking uh trying to get some tech ideas looking at things and uh i don't know i was just very depressed it felt, it felt all just so so suburban the most interesting stuff i get is kind of the steampunk uh version of uh synthesizers and they're all analog you know yeah. they look yeah. really just they look so complicated just for the sake of complexity and you think yeah. how am i going to do anything with this stuff but i don't care because it looks visually sort of interesting dude, dude like moog synthesizers fuzz pedals all that stuff is so cool it's yeah. it's like like tube amps i i could geek out on that forever uh, I, I know a guy who used to fix tube amps. That was kind of his job. And I thought that was one of the coolest jobs you could possibly have, just fixing old tube amps. Um, but I think that that is probably uh, one of the richest in terms of interpretation dreams that you've had. And I, I, I really like this idea that has emerged from, from it of ideas having their time and conversely, you know, once they've had their time, you know, being able to be relegated to an, a nostalgic aesthetic artifact, like a steampunk film or book or, or what have you, but recognizing that to every time it has its, uh, it has its zeitgeist and you, you put it in that time very specifically, but you, you have to, eventually you have to abandon these ideas. And I think that, what you and I do on this podcast, what a lot of <clears throat> similarly minded people are doing on their shows or in their books are recognizing that now this, this, this way of being, you know, this ontology essentially has completely run its course and we need a new one. Yeah. And then the one that we come up with will also run its course. And then our descendants, our grandchildren, children, uh, maybe great grandchildren will have to come up with a new one, but that's what's going on right now. Is that the constant consumerism and distraction from the phone is 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 keeping us from molting? We're supposed to be molting right now, and yeah. we're just not doing it. You know, I saw this great documentary about uh, orca whales. It's how Gus goes to sleep. I turn on a documentary and he, oh, he passes out. I thought he was listening to whales. Yeah, and. uh it was these orcas they followed them through uh, uh norway and then they went up to antarctica and the water in antarctica is so cold that the orcas are unable to sort of shed their their skin cells so you know those those white spots on the side of their head they turn brown because they had they're not able to regenerate it because of how cold it is oh. and so we're all orcas right now in antarctic ice water with brown spots where they should be white. <laughs> wow, that's nice. And that's not a good look. That's not aesthetically as pleasing. No, it's yeah. rusty. It and, looks uh, rusty. We've gone against yeah. brand. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the, the it, yeah, no, brand no. Can't uh, do it. Great well, episode. I had so much fun. That, that was is, a good one. 
That is, that's God. I, I'm now thinking, yeah. Well, to not to to be, you know, to be molting, you know, like finding. Whenever I find like a rattlesnake skin, which doesn't happen too often, but it's it's cool when it does. You think, wow, that really is a powerful thing of being able to, you know, to have that transformative energy and to have something to become. And mm-hmm. this is the problem. I think we've, I think we hit on something really good. I think oh, we really so did. Yeah, there's so much to think about. I love this. This is great. And we will be back next time to Thanks, talk about uh, keep shedding brutalism. skin. There we go. Oh man, that was.